Welcome to the podcast for Icon Church. We are a Seattle-based community that believes all people are icons of the invisible God, made in His image to reflect His glory and grace. Well, good evening and welcome to Icon. Uh, Happy New Year to all of you that I haven't seen in this decade. Uh, It's great to see you all. You look even better this decade than the last. I'm optimistic about how this is going to go for all of us. Uh, Hey, this is our uh, Vision Sunday. It's our very first Icon Vision Sunday, so you can tell your grandchildren that you were here at the very first Icon Vision Sunday. Probably won't, but you could. Uh, tell them that. Uh, We are going to do a couple things. The first thing I want to do this evening is introduce to you our ICON leadership team. And before they come up, uh, I want to describe for you what this team is for and and why I'm introducing them to you. So um, as of today, we don't have elders for our church. We believe in the the scriptures teach pretty clearly that elders are meant to lead the church um, and that we shouldn't uh, uh, kind of lay hands on elders or establish elders too quickly, that um, elders need to show themselves to be uh, uh, kind of worth, uh, worthy of the position, wise and mature and dependable and all those kinds of things. And so we are going to start that process uh, here in 2020. I'm excited to have some elders by the end of the year. Um, but for now, um, I am the only elder of the church. Uh, but we do have a leadership team because I cannot and should not uh, be leading this church by myself. And so um, we have established a team of folks that have been helping me. This is the second iteration of this team. They're on kind of annual uh, re-ups. And, uh, and so the, our new team, I want to introduce to you, but I want to tell you exactly what they do first. The first thing they do, and I've asked them to do three things. First thing that they do is help with vision and strategy. Okay, so um, the point of this team is to stay at a pretty high level uh, and, and make sure that the things that we're committed to as a church in terms of uh, theology and values and kind of our mission here in Seattle stays on target. They don't get into the weeds of execution or operations. That's what the staff is for. Um, but this team stays at that level of vision and strategy. And that's a really important piece uh, because it dictates so much of who we are going to be, not just this year, but into the future. So that's the first thing. The second thing I've asked them to do, because each of them lead and serve and participate in different ways here at ICON, I have asked them to lay down their individual uh, kind of allegiances or their individual priorities and help make decisions that are best for ICON as a whole. So some of them are community group leaders, some of them uh, lead or serve in children's ministry, and we have said, hey, when you are here in this room for on this team, you are not here as a representative of of children's ministry uh, that you need to give, you know, their, how this is going to affect them. You are here to give some insight from that perspective, but ultimately we're all making decisions that are going to be the best for the whole. Now, every big decision always in every context helps some people, hopefully most people, but it's always going to be a disadvantage for somebody. And it's kind of up to leadership to be able to go, gosh, I know this is going to be hard for these people and we're going to have to help them and uh, kind of get through this, but this is the best decision for the whole. And that's what this team's doing. So one, uh, that we're sticking with that a vision and strategy. Two, that we're, we care about ICON as a whole. And then lastly, that we are making decisions together. 
okay? Um, I know myself, and many of you know me, and I can have a strong personality. I, uh, my wife tells me I end every sentence with a period, right? That this is the truth. There is an implicit, thus saith the Lord, at the end of every sentence. Uh, I'm not trying to do that sometimes, uh, but that's what it is. And so um, I need people around me who are going to hear the things I say as suggestions as to what we might do in the future, but are willing to have good dialogue about those things and not just simply go, oh, okay, that's what we're doing. All right, let's go do that. But to go, hey, have we thought about this? And what about this option? Could we do it this way? And be strong in, uh, to my strength uh, in that. And so this team was handpicked for all three of those reasons, people that care about ICON, people that are strong leaders, uh, and people that can kind of live at that vision and strategy realm. So with that in mind, I want to invite the leadership team forward so I can introduce them to you so you can know who they are, uh, be praying for them, and, uh, and be supporting them. Uh, I'm going to step down off the stage so it doesn't look like I'm above them, <laughs> though it's tempting. All right, so hopefully you guys can see them. I'm going to introduce them really quickly because this morning I took a long time to introduce them and it was like half an hour they were standing up here. So uh, this, is, uh, this is most of the leadership team. Uh, the, the exception is my wife, Emily, who is downstairs teaching children's ministry. Could not be up here, but she is on the team as well. Am I missing anyone else? And oh, and Hunju's not here. So Cliff's wife, Hunju, is also on the team, uh, but not here this evening. So I'm going to briefly introduce them to you. Uh, some of them, uh, if you've been around Icon for a while, you should know some of these faces, if nothing else. If you uh, were part of Reunion Church that we recently joined with, uh, you should see some familiar and friendly faces up here as well as we are trying to put these two churches together, uh, also putting leadership teams together. So we'll start with our resident Canadian, uh, Steve Cairns, care about diversity, so we got a Canadian here, uh, and uh, I uh, made that same joke in the morning, and it killed. And um, so love Steve and his wife, Rochelle, and their kids, uh, who are great and very blonde and, uh, and fantastic. We love them. So that's Steve. Uh, Patrick Shipley. Everybody say hi to Patrick. See, in the morning service, everyone clapped, which is uh, interesting to see the vibe here in the evening. They're like, meh, meh. Um, yeah. Force clapping just, it rings hollow. It just rings hollow. Okay, so Patrick, recent grad of Seattle University. There we go. And now works at a startup and uh, is a great dude. Cliff Lowe, uh, Cliff and his wife, Hunju, and their two kids have been part of uh, Icon from the very beginning. One of our founding families uh, came here uh, from Doxa with us. Uh, we have Wendy Beeman and her husband, Keith, who's sitting over there. And they are, have been a part of Reunion for some time now and have served as leaders of the community group in West Seattle. So if you live in West Seattle, you should definitely check out their community group. It's fantastic. Che Choi, our worship director and general creative great guy, uh, is uh, here, and his wife Amy and their boys, and uh, we are just so blessed to have Che on the squad. Uh, he is also on staff. Uh, Josh Obendorf, Josh and Rebecca uh, lead a community group in the U District, so if you live anywhere near the U District or you like to party, uh, join their community group. Glad the Hawks game could rack up before you had to come here. Uh, that's good. Uh, Arlon Palo Alto, 
Yep, okay. Uh, he and his wife, Courtney, uh, have been a part of Reunion for some time as well, part of the le original leadership team at Reunion, and uh, we're just super thankful to have them on our team. Uh, and last but certainly not least, Alona Trofimovich, our director of operations, and uh, basically everything that happens at Icon touches her world at some point, and it gets better as a result of it. So Alona uh, is part of the Lowe's community group and, uh, again, serves as our director of operations. So this is your leadership team, uh, if you can visualize Emily and Hunju as well. Um, we are here to serve you to serve the church, to think about the future of the church, to care about the whole church, uh, to sacrifice hours and energy and heart and all of this. This team does not have more hours in the day than you do. They do not have more days in the week than you do. And yet they have set aside some of those hours and days uh, for your sake. And so my, my ask is that you would be praying for them um, and that if you have questions uh, about who we are and what we're doing and why we're doing some of the things we do, feel free to always come talk to me, but you can talk to them too. These, these people, they know what's going on and they are an integral part of what's happening here and the decisions that we're making. If there are decisions that you're really encouraged by, man, encourage them. If there are decisions that you're troubled by, complain to them. And it, it's, it, it, we are a team leading together. So um, I'm going to pray for them, and I would ask that you would continue to pray for them and me as well. Jesus, thank you for this team. Thank you for these men and women who um, are serving your people, your church so faithfully, and ultimately, Lord, serving you. Each of them have made a commitment to uh, spend their hours not on something they would want to do, some hobby or even something good like family or work or whatever, Lord, that they have committed to spending this time on your church, serving your people. And I will never, never stop being thankful for that. So Lord, I pray that you would bless our team with wisdom, that you would bless us with discernment, to bless us with listening ears and a humble heart to be led by you in all things. Lord, I pray that we would be sensitive to the needs, not only of our church community, but of our larger city, to know how we can best serve them, lead our church, Lord, and glorify you in all things. In Christ's name we pray, amen. We thank them as they go back to their seats. All right, um, before we get into the scriptures this evening, um, I want to do a little bit of look back to 2019 before we uh, look forward to 2020. Um, 2019 was an incredible year uh, for, for our family, for our church, um, and I know that every single year, there's not been a year of your life nor mine that hasn't had uh, certainly its ups and its downs. So I know that many of you dealt with uh, really hard times, some tragedy in 2019, uh, and so we're going to look back and, and see God's faithfulness in the good, and we're going to see God's faithfulness uh, in, in those harder challenges challenging times, but this, these, the, the turn of the calendar creates these moments for us to stop and think when we don't otherwise, or at least we won't uh, otherwise do so. And so I want to take a minute to look back, and because 2019 was the first year of our church's existence, um, and I know some of you are new and haven't been here since the beginning, I want to give you just a little bit of background on where we've been uh, before we turn the page and look at where we're going. So 
Um, for, uh, let's see, in August of 2016, me and my family moved up to Seattle to be a part of Doxa Church in Bellevue. I had been friends with several of the pastors uh, for some time, and uh, we were in a period of transition, and they uh, asked if we would come up and be a part, help them through a transition that they were going through. And uh, our time at Doxa was sweet. It was fantastic. We learned and we grew. We made some what I think will be lifelong friends. Um, but from the very beginning, it was meant to be a season. It was going to be two or three years that we were going to be at Doxa, help them make some transitions, and then beyond to the next thing. And so we were nearing the end of our third year and started to ask the question, what does it look like uh, for us to transition out? What's the next thing for us? And uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, I have planted two churches before this one. This is our third plant. And frankly, I had no interest in a third. I had been there, done that, and was ready to let younger people do it in the future. And so uh, we were not really thinking about church planting. And so we looked at different ministry jobs around the country and Phoenix and LA and New York City and all over the place. And, uh, and kind of during that time of discernment and prayer, several people came to us, several people that are in this room came to us and said, hey, you know, you're living in Seattle you're going across the bridge to Bellevue. There's a bunch of us who live in Seattle who are also going across the bridge to Bellevue. What would it look like if we planted a church in Seattle? And I was open to it because I'm always open to what the Lord would have. My wife, not so much uh, open to it. Um, she, she got there eventually. Uh, but, uh, but the you know, the weather. You know, it's, it's a tough deal. She's a California girl. But we started to pray about it and started to really think about it. And God, over the course of about six months, really made it clear to us in a number of ways that we were supposed to plant. And so um, at the end of 2018, we started to gather in my living room. Uh, we lived in the Roosevelt neighborhood and started to think and pray together as a really small core group. What would this look like uh, to plant a church in Seattle? And there were a couple things that really mattered to us. And one of the big things was that we wanted to be in the center because we wanted to be a church for Seattle as a whole and not just one neighborhood of Seattle. And we had realized that most people who live in North Seattle don't go to South Seattle. And most people in South Seattle don't go to North Seattle, but everybody will come to the middle. And so we thought, well, then let's plant a church in the middle. And it just so happened that the middle was Capitol Hill. And we went, are we sure? Uh, because, you know, that's hard. And so uh, we really kept praying about it and thinking about it. Gosh, man, it, more and more it made sense for us uh, to, to try to plant a church here in Seattle. And so in January and February, we were doing prayer nights uh, at a church that is just literally on the other end of this block at Calvary. Uh, we were doing prayer and vision stuff. And uh, people started to join us. And, and those who had joined us started to say, gosh, uh, this is great. When do we start? And, and the plan had always been to start in September. Um, but more and more, we thought, gosh, maybe we should start sooner. What would that look like? We're not really ready, but maybe we could just do something on a weekly basis. And um, honestly, out of almost pure laziness, uh, I had already prepared uh, the uh, uh, First Corinthians series for Doxa before I left. And so I thought, well, I could teach through First Corinthians. I've already kind of done all the hard work. Now I just have to preach it. And, uh, and so on March 3rd of 2019, we started, we soft launched Icon. We had a whole group of people one at a time running through here to uh, 
play guitar for us. It was super low key. We taught through 1 Corinthians. We had a lot of time for conversation and, and relationship building. And slowly but surely, that little group of 30 or so people became 40 and 50 and 60. And by the time we hit the summer, we, were, we had about 100 people with us, uh, which was just way more than we expected to have at this point. And then we had a really busy summer. We did a bunch of launch stuff. Labor Day weekend, we had uh, Dr. Rebecca McLaughlin out to do uh, what we called Intersect, a faith and culture kind of night, which was awesome. Over at Oddfellows, she taught and we did Q&A about some of the most important and difficult topics that anyone can be talking about right now. And then on September 8th, thank you, Alona, told you, everything goes through Alona, even my sermon. On September 8th, uh, we launched Icon Church officially, our, our hard launch. And uh, it, it exceeded every expectation that I could have had. Um, like I said, I've planted two churches before, and none of them have out of the gate gone as well as this How We've made a ton of friends. We've launched community groups. We launched a, a leadership development cohort, two of them, actually. We've been able to hire uh, not just Alona and Che, but also Emily and Katie to do children's ministry, and Paolo to run our story team, and Luke to run all, all our AV stuff, and it has just been a massive blessing to see what God has done this year. And then in November, um, we, I, I got a call from Pastor Sam Smith at Reunion Church saying, man, um, I got I to gotta take a break. I'm going to go on sabbatical. And what would you think about putting our churches together? And it came together really quickly, and it was not on the radar in many ways. Um, and, and God has done nothing but bless that transition in ways, again, I would never have expected. Oftentimes, uh, church merger kind of things are really hard and messy relationally, um, but every time we kind of lifted a rock at reunion to kind of go, okay, what about this community group or what about this group of people? All we found was health. We found people that loved each other and loved Jesus, and certainly things are not without their challenges. Uh, but man, it has just been remarkable uh, what God has done in, in that transition uh, in, in a very, very short amount of time. So here we are, January 5th, looking down the barrel of 2020, trying to figure out, okay, what is this first full calendar year of Icon Church look like? What are, we, what are we setting out to do? Who are we setting out to be? And I will say this before we get into the text. I'll say this. Whatever we think and whatever we expect, whatever we hope, it's gonna be less than what God has for us. Because what I have learned about God is whatever my expectation is of him, he, he always exceeds it. And he exceeds it not by saying, well, I want 10 new community groups and he always gives me 12. That's not what I mean. What I mean is that I go, God, I, I, want, I want our church to develop this way, or I want my family to grow in this way, or I want to grow in this way. And he goes, I hear that, and I'm going to raise you one. I'm going to teach you more. I'm going to change you more. I'm going to do new things that you're not even asking for from me. I'm going to do more than you could have imagined, but not necessarily in the way that you imagined. And so as much as I want to lay out a vision for tonight for what 2020 and beyond might look like for Icon, I also want to start by saying, I don't know the future. 
And I don't wanna claim to know the future, and frankly, I'm glad I don't know the future because whatever I could imagine for our future, God's going, oh, that's a cute, small, little vision, isn't it? Those are small ideas that you have there. That's cute. And I I feel him patting me on the head as I lay out what I think is an aggressive vision. Um, God is going to do what God's going to do, and I hope and pray that he chooses to use us in the process. So that being said, um, here's exactly what's going to happen this year. (laughs) That's a joke. John 1. Turn to John 1. Um, We've already spent quite a bit of time in John 1 already in our Advent series, Um, but there is uh, two verses, there are two verses in John 1 that have really stuck with me since our very first Advent sermon, and uh, I I, I get this sense that um, these two verses are are going to stick with me all year, and God often does that uh, with me where he gives me a verse that just kind of sticks in my heart and sticks in my mind for some season of time, so at least at the outset of this year, John 1, 4, and 5 are going to be something of a roadmap for us as we pursue uh, life with Christ uh, together. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll jump into John chapter 1. Jesus, we are so in need of you. And Lord, I, I, I hope, I pray, I beg of you that you would not give us um, uh, success, that you would not give us growth, that you would not allow us to accomplish our goals unless you also protect us from thinking we don't need you. Unless you also remind us along the way, Lord, that it is you doing all the heavy lifting. That any good, any success, any, 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 any growth that we see is entirely the product of your will and your grace. The power of your spirit. So, Lord, we want to see growth. We want to see transformation. We want to see development. We want to see people get saved. We want to see the saved grow in their faith. We want to see all that, and we ask you for it, Lord, but not at the expense of us taking our eyes off you. So, Lord, remind us how deeply in need of you we are. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. John 1, 4 and 5. In him... Jesus, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Three things for us from these two verses for this year. One, in him was life. Uh, this, this little phrase, those four words, are kind of the heart of what has stuck in my heart since first studying those first five verses um, in our first Advent sermon. In him was life. That is a promise, but it is also a challenge. Because if this is true, in him was life, meaning that insofar as we are in Christ, insofar as we orient our life with his, insofar as we submit our life to him, to the degree that we are united with him, we will experience life. 
So there's promise in that. That in him, we will find life. That if we will orient our lives around him, we will find this, this precious, whole, abundant life that the scriptures promise us. So there's, there's, there is a promise there. But there is also a warning. Because if in him was life, that means that in everything else, there is not life. This is a statement of exclusivity where Jesus here claims, or John on Jesus' behalf claims, that Jesus is the source of life. In fact, um, I, I love Colossians chapter one, which is one of the passages that helped us kind of form our identity as a church, as icon. Paul in Colossians 1.15 says, he, Jesus, is the image or the icon of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Man, you could spend a year thinking about that phrase. In him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In other words, there is nothing, nothing, more important than this. There is nothing, not, not icon, hear me. There are lots of things more important than icon. There is nothing more important than Jesus. There is nothing that can give you life like Jesus. There is nothing that ought to be at the center of your being greater than Jesus. There is nothing that ought to be at the center of your mind than Jesus. There is nothing that you ought to care about more than Jesus. There is no one you ought to follow more than Jesus. There is no being, no idea, no thing, no pursuit, nothing more important than Jesus. Not your career, not your future, not your spouse, not your child, not your hope of a future spouse and child, nothing about your future or your past or your present, nothing is more important than Jesus because nothing can give you life like Jesus. In fact, Anything that we bring into that place of center that isn't Jesus, the moment we bring it into that place, we begin to kill it. We begin to smother it. We begin to squeeze the life out of that thing. Not only with anything else at, the, at, at our center are we walking path, uh, down a path of death, but whatever we put at the center, we are also killing in the process. Think about it. Think about it. Anything that is at the center of your being is the kind of primary orienting principle of your world. It is the thing that you build your identity on. It is the thing that you build your future around. It is the thing that defines who you are and therefore what you ought to be doing. It is at the center of that thing. So for instance, if that center for you is your work, then your work 
has to succeed. You have to be good at it. What you're doing has to matter. If you are working a job that's making widgets for people who don't care, then that is the center of your being. You are, in effect, a widget maker for people who don't care. That is the truest thing about you if your work is in the center. And that's just a sad, sad thing to be. But more than that, if, if your work is at the center of your being and it begins to not go well, if your career is not on the trajectory that you need it to be on in order to be the kind of person that you have to be, need to be, want to be so desperately, the moment that begins to go sideways is the moment you are immediately tempted to cut corners, to cheat, to lie, to steal, to climb over people, to use people in order to get that thing that is in the center back onto the path it's supposed to be on so that you can be the person you were meant to be. And in that moment, you lose the ability to actually enjoy your work and allow it to be what it was meant to be, which is an expression of your humanity. It is an expression of God's gifts given to you. It's an expression of God's creative power in the world bestowed upon you. It ceases to be all of those things when it has to be the center. It's even more dangerous when that center is a person. When a relationship is the defining thing about you and you implicitly or possibly explicitly say, in him is life or in her is life and him is not Jesus. The moment that happens, that, 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 that your happiness and your future and your security and your stability and your identity and your sense of who you are is wrapped up primarily in another person, that is the moment you begin to kill that person for all intents and purposes. Maybe not literally, but maybe. Guys, come on. Murder's always funny. No? because you begin to squeeze the life out of that relationship. The moment they have to be something for you, the moment you, you put the pressure of them being your center, you are laying on them all of the pressure of everything you've ever been and hoped for and they cannot breathe because of the amount of pressure you've put on them. Anything else that sits at the center, you will kill and over time will kill you. In him was life. In Christ is life. That is the center of our being. It is our hope in the world. It is the most important thing. It is all about Jesus, literally all of it. And man, if there is anything else, there is nothing else that you hear going into 2020 and could, could just take one truth into 2020 with you that will bring you the greatest amount of life and the greatest amount of joy and the greatest amount of hope, it is those four words, in him was life. 
so that each and every time you are tempted to ask somebody or something else to give you life, that you would remind yourself, no, in him is life. In him is hope. In him is joy. In him is a future. In him is contentment. In him is peace. In him is all of what God has created us for. We find it in and through him. Because here's what happens. The moment Jesus is at the center and relationships and career, which are so good, I love my wife and I love my children and I love my job, but the moment they are in the middle, I crush them. The moment Jesus is in the middle and they are here, they get to be an expression of my life with him. I get to love them and I, it doesn't have to be good all the time because it just isn't. If you are in a marriage, you can say amen. It's just not always awesome. Please, Give me something. Okay. Just had a panic attack there for a minute. I'm, am I the only one? I'm not. I've talked to you. And that's okay. And, and you know what? Work can just be an expression of your gifts and who God made you to be. And it can have its ups and downs. And the ups don't puff you up with pride. And the downs don't destroy you because it's not who you are. So you can just enjoy doing it. And I can enjoy my kids running around because if any of them are you know, misbehaving or if any of them grow up to be something I don't want them to be, that's okay. I mean, it'll be sad if they're not all professional baseball players, but I mean, eventually I'll get over it. <laughs> but it just allows me to let them be who they are because they don't have to be who I am. So in him is life. And that truth is the foundation that we build everything else on. The rest of verse four says, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. And this, this metaphor for light, John uses all throughout, not only his gospel, but his epistles. And it all, is always and forever about how we see. Light is the means by which we see. Light reflects on things, illuminating them so that we can see truly. So the life of Jesus, life in Christ, life with Jesus allows us to see clearly what is around us so that we can then, instead of making our spouse or our job or whatever the most important thing, we can see it for what it is, a really good thing that's going to have its ups and downs. It's going to require work. It's going to require effort. It's going gonna, it's gonna to fail us at, at sometimes and bring us great joy at others. And it just is. And we can see it properly because life in him exposes the truth about the things around us. Now, here's where this gets challenging for us and, and connects to the very first thing that I want us to talk about for 2020, specifically to Icon. In theology, in Christian theology, we believe this, um, this, this really unique thing about our salvation. Okay? And, it, and it has to be held in tension, these three ideas. One is that Jesus accomplished everything necessary on the cross so that we might be reconciled back to Christ. In fact, in Colossians 1, Paul continues to say that Christ on the cross reconciled us and made peace. 
made peace between us and God and reconciled us back with him. What Christ accomplished on the cross did all of that. And his reconciling power and peacemaking power continues to be happening. So one of the ways we say, say this is we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved ultimately when we are reunited fully with him in heaven. So we were saved on the cross in that that work was all that needed to be done, and yet the application of the cross requires an ongoing work. So here's what this looks like in real life. So some of us here, and I hope many of us here, have been saved by the power of the cross. And we would say, yes, I am a Christian, and I have placed my eternal hope in Christ's work on the cross. But... We don't always see the world through the life of the Christ, the life that was given to us that is meant to be a light to our path and help illuminate our vision for the world. We often don't see by it, right? So here's what that looks like. We will go throughout our lives valuing things very similarly to what the rest of the world values rather than seeing things the way Christ sees them. So work is the best example of this, I think. Because the world around us sees work often as something worth giving your whole life to, and we call it workaholism. Now, what used to be called workaholism is just called Amazon, right? So it's... 60 hours a week, and, and, and we just put up with certain bosses, right? Like, that's just reality now. What used to be crazy is now normalized, okay? When we have, when we have hidden our life in Christ, as the scriptures say, as, as we have drawn nearer to Christ and we're able to see, our eyes have been opened so that we can see the world through him being at the center rather than our careers being at the center. Once he's there and we see more clearly, we can see things for what they are. And we go, yeah, hey, this is good. What I'm doing here is good. It is worthwhile work that I am participating in. It's a reflection of my God-given gifts. It's a reflection of, my, of the image of God in me who is a creator and has empowered us to be co-creators with him in the world, to take piece A of creation and piece B of creation, put them together in a unique way to create C that never existed before. He's given us that power, and our work can be that, but it's not ultimate. It is never, ever a reflection of who I truly am. But we don't always do that. In fact, we often fail to do that in different ways. Maybe it's not work for you. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a million other things. Ways in which we don't see the world clearly, therefore we don't interact with the world truly. We treat things as either more or less important than they really are. And if we fully saw the, their true reflection by Christ's light, we would treat them the way they were meant to be treated. Okay? So this is the third part of this tension. So in one sense, Christ has accomplished everything and it's done. In another sense, Christ continues to save us, continues to shine his light so that we can see more clearly and orient our lives with him. But there's a third piece. And that third piece is our participation, our effort, our pursuit of life with Christ. 
And we, we can get this wrong in a number of different ways. One is we can do away with the first and go, yeah, I mean, what Christ did on the cross was really important. It was a good example. But I really am responsible to kind of earn the love of God. And, and I'll take just a quick aside here because if you are here and you're not a Christian and maybe this is the first time you've been to church or first time you've been to church in a long time, first, super thankful you would be here uh, and, and, and kind of amazed that you would spend your time with us and, and really thankful. You're always welcome here. Second thing I will say to you if you're here and you're not a Christian, I don't know what you have heard about Christianity, but if, if the sole source of your information about Christianity has been our larger pop culture, there's one major thing that our pop culture gets wrong about Christianity pretty consistently, and it's this, that Christianity is about following rules so that God will accept you. That if you can do the right things, then God will love and accept you. That not only isn't Christianity, not only has it never been Christianity, but it is literally the version of faith that Jesus fought against most violently in the Gospels. That there were people around him saying, hey, we've got to do these good things so that God will accept us. And Jesus over and over and over said, that's wrong. That has never been the thing. It has always and forever been the thing that God goes, I love you, now come follow me. And yet somehow that gets twisted and mangled into, if you follow me, then I will love you. That's just never been the gospel. That's never been Christianity. And I'm sorry if you have heard that out of the mouth of a Christian. It's wrong. They were wrong. And they misrepresented Christ. The, the gospel from day one, from page one, is God loves us. God pursues us. God sacrificed for us on the cross so that we might know him and follow him and experience the life, this abundant, thriving, flourishing life that he's promised. That's always been Christianity. So that aside over, there's a way we can get this wrong to go, okay, what Christ did was just an example, and it's really on me to do this. The other way we can get this wrong is go, no, Jesus did everything on the cross, and so I can kind of do whatever I want. That there is no effort required on my part, and in fact, if you tell me I have to go try and do something, that's legalism, and that's wrong. That ain't it either. We have been given the keys to the kingdom, as the scriptures say. We have been given the grace to be able to follow him, but we have to actually follow him. Dallas Willard, one of my favorite authors, says it this way, grace is not opposed to effort, it is opposed to earning. Grace is not opposed to effort, it is opposed to earning. We cannot earn God's love because he's already given it to us fully. I say this all the time, there is nothing you can do there is nothing you can do to make God love you more. And there is nothing you can do to make God love you less. He loves you the most, and he always has. And he demonstrated that on the cross. So there, there is no activity that you can do to make God love you more or less. It's done. It's finished. So grace in the gospel, it's not opposed to effort, to actually desiring to orient our lives and, and to utilizing our self-control and our brains and our time to orient our lives around life with Christ, but it is opposed to earning. John Mark Cummer wrote a book uh, called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. He's a pastor down in Portland, one of my favorites. And uh, he says this, the life of Christ only comes through the lifestyle of Christ. 
The life of Christ only comes through the lifestyle of Christ. So if you see what Jesus was like and you see his life and you see the result of it and the miracles and the godliness and all that, and you go, yeah, I want that. I want the blessing of that. Then you have to also look at the way in which Christ lived to be able to follow him faithfully, to be able to see the results. I always uh, laugh when people say, man, I really want six-pack abs. And I go, no, you don't because you can't eat anything and, and you have to work out every day, like four times a day in order to accomplish that. That's the only way you can do it. If, so in other words, if you want abs like Jesus, you gotta work out like Jesus, right? You catch that? You catch that? The grace of God has been given to you freely and then it requires quite a bit of effort to, for us to orient our life consistently around the truth that has been revealed. So, I grew up in the church and uh, I had a great experience of growing up in the church. I know not all of you did grow up in the church and not all of you who did had a great experience of it. I did. But not once, not once in all of my time growing up did anyone take me aside and go, hey, um, I, I want to teach, I, I teach you Christianity. I know you're a Christian, but, uh, but you, you don't really know what that means, and so I, I want to teach you. Let's start at the beginning. Here's what the Bible is. There's 66 books in it. It starts with Genesis, ends with Revelation. There's a lot in the middle, okay? Uh, no one ever took me aside and went, you know what? Uh, let me teach you how we got our Bible. You know where it came from? Do you know who wrote it? Do you know how we picked these books and not the other ones you might have heard of? Here, here's how to read the Bible. Here's how to understand the Bible. Here, here's how to read it and understand it and not just make it say what you want it to say to you to affirm what you want to do. Here's, here's how to actually submit to the Bible. No one ever did that for me. No one ever opened the Bible to Genesis 1 and said, hey, let's talk about creation. Let's talk about what Genesis 1 and 2 actually means, what it might mean, what it definitely doesn't mean. No one ever did that for me. No one ever turned to Genesis 3 and said, let's talk about sin. We gotta understand what, what sin is and why you're tempted to disobey and rebel, why you get angry sometimes in the ways that you do, why you're selfish. No one ever did that. And on and on and on and on and on. No one ever sat me down and said, let's start at the beginning, let's talk about what this means to be a Christian. And took me all the way to the end and went, okay, that's, that's basically what it means. I, I consult with churches fairly often, and one of the things I, I tell pastors never to do, I say never hand out blank pieces of paper to your people with a pen or a pencil, and never ask them just to write down in two to three sentences what the gospel is. Never do that, because the responses will be really disappointing to you, because they don't know. Not in, I mean, not you guys, these other churches. You should see these other churches. They're <laughs> train wrecks. But when it really comes down to like, okay, tell me what grace is. Tell me what it means that we're saved by grace through faith. One of the core tenets of our faith. Just explain to me a couple sentences what that means. Most of us don't know. I, I say this all the time. How many, how many why questions would it take until your faith cracks? If you say, well, I, I believe this, and somebody at your workplace goes, well, why? Well, because the Bible says that. 
Well, why do you believe the Bible? Well, because that's how I grew up. Okay, well, why, does, why is that still authoritative? Why does that still matter? You do everything that you grew up with? or why? And how many why questions would it take before you go, oh, man, I have no idea. And it's not your fault. If you've not been taught, you can't know. And so I look at the world around us and I go, man, we have been supported by a largely, if you've grown up in the Western world, you've grown up in a largely uh, Judeo-Christian value-centric world. And that is changing rapidly, but that's basically what we've experienced if you grew up in the Western world in the last 50 to 100 years. And as those supports start to go away, as the culture no longer agrees with us about various things, and we're forced to actually not be propped up by those kind of feedback loops of support, and we actually have to think hard about why we believe what we believe, I think that, I think the reason why we're seeing so many people kind of drift off and change their mind and lose their convictions is because they were never taught this stuff in the first place. Man, this is so near and dear to my heart because I meet with people all the time, marriages that are in shambles, people losing their faith, and I always ask them the same questions. I always say, are are you reading your Bible consistently? And the answer is almost always no. Do Do you pray every day? Just even if it's short, do you pray? And the answer is almost always no. Are you in consistent community with people talking to you about Jesus and supporting you and, and pushing on you and all that? And the answer is almost always no. These basic, basic things, let alone being taught simple stuff like what is the gospel and what is grace and why do we believe things by faith and what does that even mean to believe something by faith? and What, what does it mean that, to, to be sanctified? One of the most important words in the scripture, what does that even mean? And We don't know. So this year, in, in quarter one, we're going to roll out something we're calling Icon Groups, and it is a bit of a passion project for me, as you might be able to tell. And what it is, it's a genesis to revelation, essentially, if you're unfamiliar with the word catechism, but is basically just a systematic walk through Christian theology and practice. And so each module will have four sections that will be kind of Bible and theology. What do we believe and why do we believe it? One on ethics. Why do we believe that certain things are moral and certain things are immoral? And how should we respond to things like care for the environment? Why would a Christian care for the environment? And why, more appropriately, why is, why is it that throughout history, every major movement against whether it was racism or sexism or bigotry in any form was always founded upon this idea of the Imago Dei in Genesis 1. Every single time. Why? What does the Imago Dei mean when it comes to issues of bigotry in our world? How do we connect those dots from theology to practice ethics? And then each will have uh, a spiritual practice, a spiritual discipline that will be practiced and will learn how to do kind of prehab, right, in our relationship with God. How do we work these disciplines? And that'll roll out here in quarter one, because I think life in Christ is massively important, but life with him, walking daily with him, rooting our life and hearts, allowing us to see the world the way he wants us to see it. Lastly, verse five. The light shines in the darkness, 
and the darkness has not overcome it. The darkness has not overcome the light, but not for lack of trying. The darkness deeply wants to overcome the light. The darkness is, uh, is working proactively to overcome the light. Now, we know that the darkness in, in this context was evil. Evil will never overcome Jesus. Never ultimately win. We know the end of the story. Spoiler alert, God wins, right? That's the end of the story. But in the middle, we know that the darkness is constantly trying to overcome our light. It is constantly trying to overcome us and win victories in our life. And so this idea flows out of the first two. That as culture changes and we no longer have the supports around us, what I have seen happen over and over in the last five years of doing ministry is people face hardship in their life, some challenging situation that is genuinely challenging, genuinely very difficult, but the response to that challenge is abundantly clear in the scriptures, and maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago, everyone around them would give them the same basic advice, like, no, you've got to walk down this path, and it's going to be hard, it's going to be narrow, it's got boulders, like, it's going to be rough, but that's the path to walk down. Now, more and more and more, people are going, well, but that looks hard, and this one would be easier, and this one would be easier, and this one would be easier, and people who just a a short time ago were some of the most, uh, uh, honestly, legalistic People I have ever known, the, those who were so insistent on the right path and the right way, once the challenges of life hit their life, are now turning to see other easier non-gospel options in their life. So here's what that means. We are living in an increasingly hostile environment to Christianity. Uh, This is not trying to be some doomsday kind of message. It's not trying to go, those bad guys out there and we're the good guys in here. That's not the idea at all. In fact, if anything, it is just simply a a, a revelation of what the scriptures have described since the very beginning that we've probably been blinded to up until this moment. And so it's finally being revealed what has always been the case, which is that the road of Christianity, the path that Jesus beckons us down is difficult. We're going to see as we go through the Gospel of John that Jesus uses this narrow way, saying my way is the narrow way, it's the hard way, it's the road less traveled, it's not the broad and easy way. It never has been, literally since the time of Jesus. It has always been the hard path. And when we have hard paths ahead of us, we need help. We need an environment. We need people around us who are going to support us and walk with us and climb those boulders with us. And so um, for 2020, my hope is that icon groups will begin to lay a foundation for who we are going to be as a people. But as I look out five 10, 15 years into the future, I believe that God has called Icon to build an ecosystem, a, a gospel ecosystem here in Seattle that will allow us to support one another in every area of life. 
which begins with being a church, that God has already kind of, from the very beginning, my vision for Icon has been that we would be a multi-congregational church, which means, yes, multi-site, but that each of those congregations would have its own local lead pastor, its own local communicator, its own local elders, but they would be highly networked for the sake of unity and ministry and mission here in the city, that we would have a north, a south, an east, and a west, and a central and God this year gave us a central and a south already. We got a head start. That these would grow into being more and more and more uniquely autonomous for the sake of their area, representing the ministry gifts and calling of the people that live and minister in that area. And that that would be the foundation to build a gospel ecosystem that reaches into issues of faith and work and faith and culture and education and the creative world and all kinds of ideas we have for the common good to partner with nonprofits and, and, and the, the political sphere to be able to work together to care for the people around us. This is the long-term goal, that we would be a, a strong tree in the midst of a desert to cast shadow so that others could kind of take, take some time, a respite under our leaves and be able to grow up into other kinds of ministry as well, and that we could establish a place here in Seattle, relationships and opportunities here in Seattle so that people who are Christian and want to be faithfully Christian in the city will have the support from other people and communities and church and work and all the different areas of life to be able to do it and be here and be supported because we just simply cannot do it alone. That's my hope for us. That's my dream for Icon. And I believe that it is a God-given dream for us. I know that what God wants for sure is that his people would thrive and grow here in Seattle. If he uses us and this specific idea, man, I will be so blessed and happy. But I just, I know what God wants for us. He wants us to find our life in him. He wants us to see through his light. He wants us to be for each other, that overlapping community that can support one another to be able to walk in his light and in him for the rest of our lives. So as we enter 2020, I want you to ask yourself this. What's your next step? We say all the time here at Icon that we believe people are only gonna take one step at a time, but we need to always be stepping. So what's your next step? Is it a step of growth? Does the icon group thing sound like something you could really use, something you really need to be able to continue to grow in your faith and knowledge of God? Is it a step of service? Is there some need that you can meet maybe at our church or in your neighborhood or workplace? Is a step of leadership. We need more community group leaders. We're gonna need a bunch of icon group leaders, people that wanna connect people with people and people who wanna connect people with Christ. What's your next step? What's your next step for 2020? Your step towards Christ and your step towards others. We know that the Holy Spirit will do the heavy lifting for us. We know that Christ has accomplished all that ever needs to be accomplished, and he just says, come, let's go. Let's go. It's going to be hard, but let's go. The way is going to be narrow, but let's go. There's going to be boulders in the way, but let's go. We'll climb them. Y'all are into bouldering. It's the Northwest. 
Let's do this. Let's do this together. The strong of us can climb to the top of the boulder and pick up all the rest. Let's do this together. Thank you for listening to the podcast for Icon Church. For more information, go to iconchurch.org.